Welcome to episode number 37 of the National Land Realty Podcast, where we discuss all things land. Our goal here is to inform, educate, and entertain those of you who own land or are interested in the buying and selling of land throughout the United States. My name is Mac Christian, and I am the Chief Marketing Officer here at National Land Realty. I'll be your host for this episode. In this episode, I'm talking with land professional Nicholas Artis from South Carolina. Nicholas has a background in global finance and it has paid dividends, no pun intended, in the level of knowledge he is able to provide for his clients. Nicholas is here to discuss the types of land improvements that landowners should make in order to maximize the value of their land. Now, these improvements can be made whether you are selling your land or holding it for your own enjoyment. Now sit back and enjoy. I'm sitting here with Nicholas Artis, and Nicholas, you're out of South Carolina. Uh, I'm just trying to say Mississippi to you, but um, no, you're out of South Carolina. And uh, you started with National Land Realty in 2015, is that right? Very late 15, early 2016. My effective start date 100% was literally January 1st um, of 16, and came over from the financial world, um, doing international currency hedging for a little while right out of college. and. Wasn't the right fit on that side of things and jumped over. I always thought about adding real estate on as a triple major in college, but never did. And figured after the first first major didn't work out that well, and to jump over, bring what I could into it, and come over to the land side. Yeah, yeah. So you start out with finance and global supply chain, and then you move into selling hunting land. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> always uh, done a lot outdoors. Um, enjoyed being outside, being on friends' farms, hunting, fishing, all that when I could when I was younger. And so I thought about the real estate aspect. It was all the cognates rolling over into the finance degree overall, and just never pulled that trigger. Um, and then figured out that right afterwards, I might as well give it a shot. And found Logan National Land and jumped over. And hadn't really looked back since. So that's, that's a pretty unique background. I mean, you know, I talked to a lot of agents and there's not many that have a background like this. Has that, how has that helped you as you've gone into land real estate? I feel like it's helped, it's helped a lot from the aspect of being able to really kind of connect with people and realize that there's more to it. Um, a lot of people say they're not buying a property as an investment, but inherently it is. Anybody that buys and then you know, whether they think they're going to sell or not, eventually that property is going to get sold. and so that is an investment just by the inherent nature. So it's been great to be able to kind of pull that over. And it makes it kind of tough sometimes too, because some people can get a little too caught up in the investment aspect and kind of forget what they're actually trying to do and can't see the forest for the trees, so to speak. Um, so let some of that get into their decision-making process, maybe a little bit too much, especially if the plan is going to be more of a legacy type property where it's going to be handed down. They're going to have the time to overcome if it was a bad purchase or things of that nature. So it, it's gotten interesting on, on some of those, but being able to really break into the finances and you know, tell somebody sometimes they need to hear it, you know, Hey, maybe this isn't the one for you. Maybe it's a little too much and I'd love for you to get it, but it's probably not going to be the best one. Get a smaller one. Let's work with that for a little bit and then come back to it later on. Can go into a 1031 exchange, move it over. You might just hit the lottery in the meantime, have a little bit extra cash there um, and still want to keep that first property. Uh, so it's just been, been good being able to bring that side of things in and somewhat speculate a little bit um, in different areas of what's going to grow, what's not going to grow, um, how to make it grow faster. 
Uh, so that's been all fun stuff and looking at the investment side and a lot we're talking about today being how you can improve a property and what that can do for your values, whether you're necessarily doing it to sell immediately, to sell in a short term or hold forever is still going to be a value added. And then what you can do from there with um, borrowing against property pledging as collateral if you need to, or um, just being able to further enjoy your own property. Yeah. So, so it sounds like what you've been able to do is go in and, and talk to, you know, potential land buyers or, or sellers, right. And really have that sort of return on investment conversation of, of, you know, are you picturing a return? How long do you anticipate that return to be? You know, how long are you going to hold it? If it is going to be multi-generational, you still want to factor that in because, you know, no kid wants to get handed junky land from their parents. Right. So like you want to be able to like have that succession there and, and be able to just let them know what that land's going to do as far as value wise over the years. Right. Right. Definitely. And what kind of return are you looking for? Is it strictly monetary or is an enjoyment aspect of it? All you really need in itself, uh, fulfillment, satisfaction from seeing your son, daughter, grandson, granddaughter, whoever it is, kill the first deer, turkey, catch first fish, um, whatever that case may be. It's not always a strictly monetary um, value or appreciation. It's, it's a self-fulfillment and a personal satisfaction. You know, and that doesn't get discussed a lot is, is the, the return on investment that you receive from just the use of the land, right? Like your enjoyment of it. And, and that's an important conversation to have, right? And because you can't quantify it, but you do have to consider it, right? Exactly. And it gets tough because a lot want it to, to be able to quantify it and see it on a spreadsheet. And that's something that you, you really can't and may you know, kind of wish you hadn't done it. But then when it happens, it's very satisfying. Everybody's like, yeah. I'm, I'm glad this happened and then yep. we'll continue to see it grow from there. Yeah. We had the conversation that we had a fishing trip a while back and we had to go fish on ladders in freezing weather and uh, we drove like six hours down there and we caught our first fish and we had like a little break on the side. Like, okay, was it worth it? <laughs> yeah, it was worth it. It was good. Like you get that one piece of enjoyment out of something and like the all the work that leads up to it can make it, you know, make it worthwhile. Um, so, yeah, so we're here to kind of talk about it, the improvements that you can make to land. And, and, you know, originally I was assuming that it would be more on people looking to sell, but that's not necessarily the case. Uh, you know, what we're, what we're talking about is improvements that you can make over the long term that, that you are handing down that enjoyment factor, um, whether you're looking to flip. And then you've kind of broken this down on how you work with people. Um, according to their goals. So talk to me a little bit about how you sort of identify goals with clients and what those, what those usually are. The easiest thing at the beginning is to simply ask that question straight up. Most foresters are going to do the same thing. Any um, strict land consultant that's going to help you manage for whitetail or turkey, quail, whatever it is, it's what's the objective. And so when somebody can start thinking about it from what is my true goal with it, um, is it 100% investment from a dollar sense? Is it you know, family use as well from the personal satisfaction and enjoyment aspect? Is it going to 100% be a timber tract and you don't hunt, don't care about hunting? What can, what else could you do with it? Um, is it going to be a short-term goal that you're just trying to flip it to be able to jump to another property? Or is it going to be something that you want to, to buy and create a legacy out of um, for kids, grandkids, great-grandkids? however long you want to go. So the easiest thing really is asking that objective at the beginning. Um, and same thing on the, on the selling side. Um, I tell a lot of people 
told several last week that asked me about it. We're kind of on the fence and I kind of surprised him, I think, and said, you know, personally, I, I wouldn't sell it. You don't need to. You're not going to most likely um, where your number is. But if you don't need to, don't. But there, here's some things you could do that whenever you do go to sell it um, or leave it to somebody else, if they want the cash and they need to get out of it, what could you have done that will help at that point? Because uh, then said inherently, it still is an investment, no matter what that use is going to be. And so then once you figure out if it's going to be a short term versus a long term, there's different ways to break it down because on the short term, it's more of just kind of putting lipstick on a pig, so to speak. Um, get it a little bit easier for people to get around the track, see some improvement, and realize that they don't have to buy it and then immediately put more money into it. The basic things are already there as they need it and can buy it and go hunt right after the closing. Um, if it's going to be more of a long term, it's looking into what some of those costs are going to be and how they can plan it out over over time to make the best use out of it. Yeah. And I want to sort of just dive in here real quick to something you just said was, was you were talking about multiple, you talked to multiple landowners in the last little bit and, and you're, you're taking the true approach of a consultant where, and I just want to like clarify for anybody listening, like you are, you're first and foremost, a real estate agent and you're going into a deal where that's, you know, your income comes from facilitating the buying and selling of land. Right. And you're going into people that are looking at selling and telling them not to, which is essentially not doing business, but you're acting as a true consultant. And I just want, so, so it's more of an ethics thing. Right. And, and I just wanted to make sure to highlight that, like, okay, so you're, you're acting against your own, you know, business interest to make sure that somebody makes the right decision for their land. And it usually surprises them. Um, it, it's one that they they usually will say exactly what you just said there. Kind of, isn't it your job to sell it? And, well, yeah, uh, it is, but it's also a big thing um, to me. Uh, the sales aspects always come easy, mainly because I don't really try to sell anything. Um, at the end of the day, buyers are going to buy and sellers are going to sell. Um, but so if it, we get a good relationship, I'm going to end up from the real estate perspective being just fine because they know I was honest with them and didn't force them into something. So when their friend or their cousin or whoever mentions they might want to sell some property. Hey, you need to call Nick. Um, so it will, it will work itself out in the long run. Plus all but guarantee that I'll get those too. Um, whenever that time arises, um, or even just helping with the valuations. If some, something happens to, to that owner and they're leaving it to somebody, um, can kind of help on an evaluation and understand and have already seen the property, know the property. Um, this really helps on, on many different facets. Yeah, I've, it's it's kind of a unique piece of of how the, the land industry is because it's, it's not like anybody goes and hops on Google one day and sees an ad and says, oh, that's a great ad. I'm going to sell a thousand acres. You know, it, it doesn't work like that. People sell when they're ready to sell and they buy when they're ready to buy. And it's the, the job of a consultant to be to have those relationships in place for when that happens and to have that trust built and make sure that you've given them the right advice along the way, because just the way the land works, you might give advice to a piece of land over a 10 year period and eventually work with them. But in the meantime, you've helped them improve their, their station with their land, you know, like and, and improve that. So it's a, it's a unique sort of, sort of business model that, that, that it is. And I, I appreciate that you're going about it from, from the approach of a consultant. And at the beginning, I didn't really think about it quite as much that way and probably didn't know as much about it as I do now. Um, but I'm selling a couple right now that they bought, with zero intention of reselling and things have changed and now they're 
have come back. Um, and in the meantime, they have done some improvements. And for those specific ones, the market also was a lot better than it was when they purchased. So they've got overall market growth plus the work that they put into the property is really helping. Um, and it also will still help on the securing listings aspect. I've got one that hadn't heard from for in a while and finally got back on, on phone with him and um, he was, he's trying to get some stuff done to it, but didn't have any of the contacts. And I said, oh, well, here you go. And gave him about three different contacts to solve the problem that he had. And now we're getting those things done. Hopefully this week, if the weather will cooperate with the burning, um, getting everything started to be able to put that up on the market. Yeah. And, and with what we're talking about here too, is, you know, for the last two, three years, the market was on fire and, you know, land sold and appreciated it at a level that you know nobody's ever seen. And, you know, maybe the run up to the 06, right. But like the, the, the run on land and real estate in the last few years has been just it, it, on fire is the best thing I can come up with. I don't have any other great words for that. Uh, but where now heading into 2023, there's a lot of things, you know, people are worried about the economy, people are worried about recession, people are worried about interest rates, and the market's cooling a little bit as far as that appreciation value. And now those improvements that you make to the land are much more valuable to what you do overall. You used to be, you know, the last three years, you could hold on to a chunk of land, do nothing, sell it, make money and walk on. And now, now you got to do the work. And, and where, you know, you have to seek out how, how you can add something to the land that increases value. So yeah, tell me a little bit, start with telling me, you know, if someone we're going to call it like a flipper, right? Somebody looking to make a short-term investment in a piece of land, what are some improvements that they can look to make? And what do you, what do you look at first when you go to look at that land, you know, with a buyer? Number one thing is going to be accessibility around the track. Um, can you get to the far corners of the property really, no matter the size, how accessible is the majority of the property, especially if there's a Creek in the rear or cutting through the property, um, any focal point that most people are going to want on a property, which generally is water. Um, but can you get to those areas easily, um, and be able to recreate around those, um, utilize those different different features, whether it's a great hardwood stand that you could fit out the understory to, uh, for a great food plot, dropping acorns, um, or just getting to a little bit of an open area that could just be bush hog and have a, a food plot immediately. Um, certain properties, if you're going to be doing it more of a home site aspect, can be sub 20 acres or so, having that area for a house already prepared, um, about a three quarters of an acre, acre, cleared out, de-stumped, ready to, to put a house on immediately. Great to go on and have septic tests done. Um, in South Carolina, have been really backed up on that for the last couple of years. Um, so being able to have that already taken care of. So when a buyer calls, survey's done, septic's done, access is good. They can get into the property, see it easily. And then at that point, we aren't having to wait several weeks or months on DHEC or another testing group to come make sure the soil's good you can immediately push through all of that and have a short term closing as opposed to waiting three, four, five months on a closing because they have to wait on DHEC to come do the septic and they can't do the septic test until there's been a survey. And so all of these different things that add up on the closing term that, that allow you to one, get a higher value because it's done. A buyer's not going to have to go in and do those things to it 
they're immediately able to purchase. And if they won't, they can start breaking around that day. Um, it makes it real easy to jump in and to having all of those things makes it really easy to, to make, turn that time frame around. So those are, and, and I, I mentioned from working with a buyer because I was thinking about short-term investment where somebody comes in and they're like, you know, I want to hold this for a little bit and I want to flip it in a couple of years, you know, and, and do it that way. But, but everything that you just said also would pertain to somebody who's looking to sell land and maybe hasn't held it all that long, or even your long-term, you know, landholders that are looking to sell is if you can put in that legwork and get like a home site surveyed and get the septic test done. Cause you said there's what, like a three, four month backlog on that. At one point, yes, it's, it's gotten a little quicker now. But to me, it's if, if you're immediately looking to flip it, it's just going to be a short-term flip or investment, you're automatically a seller. You're going into it with a seller's mindset. What am I going to get out of this property when we go to sell it? Not just what can I buy it for? And the investment's made at the beginning when you make the purchase because that's your bottom line at that point. Anything to make money has to be higher than that. But so you're immediately thinking about the sale before you can make the investment in the beginning. Because otherwise, if you buy it too high, it's not going to work. If there's not enough you can do to improve it to get the higher value on the sale, it's not going to work. So you've got to be thinking as a seller, even though you're on the buying side. And if I'm working with buyers that are going to be flipping and they know that that is their only intent, go on and get that survey done at the beginning. Um, try to get a seller to pay for it if they will. Um, even if they won't, it's something that we're going to need. So even if it's a 100-acre track, going to split into smaller pieces and you scale in addition to some of these other things. We're going to get the septics done at the beginning because we need to one, make sure that they will pass before flipping it out afterwards. And it's just time that we can immediately, if we have all those things done, we have the survey done, we have the septic done, then we can just go in, make clearings, do whatever we need to do, and it's ready to go back on the market. I mean, so it's bringing that turnaround time down tremendously because we're using the beginning purchase to get everything, the, the big stuff we need done. Um, so we're use, essentially using somebody else's time and then being able to capitalize on it much quicker once we have purchased, done whatever we're going to do and get it sold back out. Yeah. And it's just similar to, you know, I, I just did a podcast on on commercial development and and looking at the possibility of, of rezoning, right? Where if you're on the outskirts of, of a metropolitan area and you just want to sell land, well, if there's if there's a long-term plan in your area, you can upzone to commercial or something else. And then your your value per acre at that point is is drastically increased. And it's sort of the same the sort of the same process where you want to go through that pre-evaluation stage where you're setting up the next buyer for success and they know what they're getting as opposed to buying just blank land and hoping for the best. Like, you know, in commercial, you want to check for underground water and stuff like that and, and, you know, pathways to access. And this is similar to where like, you want to make sure that your septic's okay. You want to make sure that there's, you know, good access to all the points in the property that somebody would want to access and you had you have a specific strategy for roads that I thought was interesting that you were that you had labeled out um, that something that a few things that you like to keep in mind for access roads. I was wondering if you could go into that a little bit. Yeah. So the the big thing, and a lot of it depends on the size of a tract, but to be able to show all those points, whether it's a stream or nice hardwood grove, things of that nature, it's best if you can make it a loop road. Um, so the majority of it is um, pulled back to one entry point you can have multiple but if you pull it back to one making one sweeping loop around a property or 
things of that nature. It makes it where when, when you're showing property, it's giving much more of a, uh, an adventure, so so to speak, with a buyer. They're not seeing the same thing twice going down one road, hit a turn around and come back. We've already seen that. So if you make it on a loop road or very large spokes, um, it, it gives more of an adventure feel and, and you're able to see more of the property off of about the same amount of road that you could have done doing one center road and spokes coming off of it. Just you allows you to get to the further points. And if you have to, you know, Culver gets blown out off of a creek crossing or something of that nature. You've now got two ways to get there. It doesn't take your only one across. Now, yes, in that instance, you'd have to put two culverts in, but chance of both of them blowing out is pretty slim. And if you do them both correctly in the first place, you will have either of them blow out, <laughs> uh, which is also an, another aspect of things. And do it. Do it right, do it light, as the football coaches used to say, or do it wrong, do it long. If you do it multiple times, it's going to end up costing more time and effort, money. Um, and if you just did it right and maybe cost a little bit more the first time, um, it'll, it'll really turn around and make it where you only do it once. Yeah, you're, you're talking about the loop and uh, one, being able to access all the way around, but two, being able to make a, a trip out of it remind it's there was an agent of ours that just sold the, it's the largest piece of property ever sold by by our company it was just sold this last year. And it was sort of an island kind of set up and you had to go to it by boat and there was one road and that's it. And it went in, I think two miles. And so to access, you had to go in two miles. Well, now you got to go two miles all the way back out. And so I think the statement was, it was miserable going in, but it was twice as miserable walking out of the thing. It, it, Cause you'd already seen all of it. It just, yeah. I think that's something you have to consider when when you're when you're looking at selling property as far as how do people access it and how do they travel around it. And then and then those roads also act as a fire break, right? Like you're you're actually adding a feature of fire resistance to that property. Is that something that you want to consider as well as how you're installing fire breaks? Well, so in a lot of instances you can can get some call share assistance on being able to put in fire breaks but more than likely you're not going to get any cost share assistance for putting in roads. So if you strictly put in a road, it is going to act as a fire break because it is, uh, there's no um, growth on the ground and it's usually beat in a little bit better. So you're not going to have fire jumping, uh, jumping your break. But what a lot of folks will do is put in your fire breaks before you do any kind of burning and then use that fire break as a road from there. So you, essentially are using some some money um, on a cost share level that allows you to put in that fire break and then you're getting a road out of it. Um, it just given a, a good dual purpose there, um, being able to access all around plus help uh, and just an overall security level too um, on both burning. Um, the worst thing you want to do is have it jump fire break and get into the neighbor's timber, um, get to a section of your that you don't want. Um, that's once it's there, it's there. Um, so having all the precautions that you can make it, um, very, very good. And from a security aspect, again, I sold a pretty large track a couple of years ago that neighbor, uh, the neighbor of the track was a friend of the sellers and, and he got his neighbor every time it rained, that neighbor would run over to the property and just ride a four wheeler around the property around that one loop road on the edge. And all that did was if anybody was going to try to trespass into that property, if they went out there at any point, they would think, gee, somebody's already been in here. It just rained two hours ago. 
Like, I, I don't want to come in here because I'm worried I'm going to get caught. So it helped from a trespassing level as well. That's hilarious. I would never think about that. <laughs> that's, that's, they're beneficial all the way around. So what? So if you're going to do this, if you're going to build a fire break, what's the qualifying kind of parameters for building a fire break? So if you get a, the cost share with that, what qualifies as that so that you can build it? And I'm assuming the way that you do it is like you're, you're building just a wider fire break so it can accommodate, you know, a UTV or a car. Mm -hmm. So I usually at that point, leave it to somebody that does forestry. Um, yeah. Them to allow, um, you know, to help a, a buyer or seller um, or just an owner at that point that's trying to do something. Let those that do that 100% for a living be the one that advises on that because I mean, you can make it as wide as you want um, or as, as skinny as you want. The skinnier you go, the higher chance of the fire jumping or the road getting encroached on just by natural growth on the property. Um, so I, I would say 10, 15, 20 feet pretty easily. Um, plus at the end of it, whether you crown your roads, so many different things you can do with the roads at that point, but it, whatever you do there then can is still becoming a uh, an avenue for wildlife to go uh, to use just as much. They're going to use the path of least resistance just as much as people are. Uh, so having um, that wider area is is good to be able to help the wildlife. Plus, it helps sunlight get up under the understory for um, understory and midstory kind of growth, depending on what your your goals are. Again, with properties, it's strictly timbers or wildlife. Um, being able to get that sunlight back in there um, usually is a good thing. Helps on moisture control. Um, just overall, is is good to have light reaching the floor. Yeah, and then so those are, I mean, terrific tips for for that short term kind of use thing. What about sort of those that are getting into land? Maybe they they have it and they just want to improve it for sort of long term. You you were mentioning personal enjoyment. And or or, you know, somebody looking to buy and, and hold it. And but they also, you know, what we were talking about before is you, it's no use to buy land and just sit on junky land like in, you know, you want to improve it to, to maximize its value. So what do you look at in those instances? And are those different than your short term sort of transactional buyers and sellers? And they're, they're pretty similar because um, if you're you're selling it. Um, you're looking at selling it quickly and you're on the purchasing side, you're going to sell it quickly versus you're going to hold it. Knowing what your cost going in is going to be good from your investment standpoint, but then do the same token, you being able to take, you know, your friends out or, or your family out to ride down to the river in the back of the property or, or go hunt. If you have um, more roads, more accessibility, there's higher potential to be able to hunt more people on the same property at the same time safely. Um, the wildlife are going to use it like I said a minute ago and making those avenues are going to be better for the wildlife because it makes it easier for them to get around a property. Um, I guess one thing we hadn't quite mentioned is having everything 100% open is not always the best either from a wildlife perspective because animals still are going to want security um, and have a good browse area close to um, where they're going to be bedding, where they're having water. Um, so making all of those places easily accessible to them and to you is going to be of strong importance. Um, on a much longer term, if you're buying a a young timber tract and, and want to see it come all the way to maturity 30, 40 years, being able to, to actively manage that property, whether it's fire or herbicide spraying, 
um, being able to get around the property is going to help whenever you get to a first thinning um, or second thinning. Having more roads to where the, the trucks and skidders can get around the property easier is going to get you a higher return off of your timber because they're not having to make roads to get said timber to, back to the logging deck. Um, so it's, it's giving them benefit, it's giving you benefit, it's giving the wildlife benefit. Um, it, it, it works all around. Yeah, and it's and you've done a little bit of, of work with commercial and and so what about in the cases of you know those exploratory stages where somebody's considering like maybe I can rezone this, maybe maybe I can put something into this and then how you know how do they go about that? So strictly on, on more of a residential development side, I think Corey Bo spoke to it um previously. Yes. But having your entitlements already in place um and the, the zoning aspect, because that is not trying to sell something or sell a tract that is, if these things are done, I get this price. It's showing the buyer, I have these things and that's why I want this price. Um, so again, to me, being able to see the property is, is of great, great importance, um, mainly on a residential development side from a topography standpoint. Um, if you have long range views and can see down a road a long way or down shooting lanes, whatever the case may be, or just strictly the understore being either mulched out or burned out. It allows developers to see that topography and um, be able to more easily envision, I can see this many houses coming in here. And so it's that's going to allow that higher density if your zoning is already appropriate. And all they're looking at is their bottom line in return. So how much can they get, how many houses or whatever they're developing, can we get in here and maximize this property? When they can see that property, makes it much easier to visualize everything so do i get to hit you with a with a rough question now um i'm, I'm just going to do it and see how you feel that actually i'm just gonna throw you on the spot here um so you know we discussed a little bit of where land values are we're not seeing the appreciation that that we've seen for the last few years and you know some of those areas we've seen land increases of a hundred percent, 150% in one year, which is just, it's, it's the kind of thing that's like, you know, it's not sustainable, but it's just where the market's heading right now. And, and now what we're looking at is more of a plateau in markets. Um, we're seeing land used more as a hedge on inflation. We're seeing land held or sold similar to the buying price. Is there, do you sort of quantify what percentage increases that you can get out of certain land improvements? And, and is that something, is it, is it just given on the area? Is it just given on, you know, the, the particular buyer that you find for that land, if you're looking to sell, or do you have certain things that you're like, okay, if you do this, the road, you can usually look at it like a 6% gain um, something in that range, or, or is it just sort of what the market will bear? From a, a recreational standpoint um, and hunting standpoint, ideally still want to attract in the path of growth um, in South Carolina. We're pretty lucky having three pretty strong markets in Greenville, um, South Carolina, and Charleston, South Carolina, and Charlotte, North Carolina. Columbia is smack in the center of the state with a major interstate leading to each. We're an hour and a half at the most from either one of them. So there's strong growth in pretty much any direction outside of Columbia. Um, so on, on recreational type tracks, I would say about probably 20 or 25 percent of that uh, that cost is going to be very easily spread back out um, with and spread across the entire acreage. 
Um, so when you start adding twenty five percent, twenty five hundred dollars, let's say a ten thousand dollar investment, twenty five hundred dollars. Well, now you bump that out on the price per acre. You're magnifying it out very quickly. Um, so that return is is pretty strong. Plus, in the meantime, if you don't sell it, then you've got the use of it. Um, it's not like it's something that only another buyer is going to use. You're going to get your your use out of it. Um, now. From a valuation standpoint, I'm 100% agree that everything's kind of plateaued out um, over the last, really since early 2020 through mid 2022. South Carolina, across the majority, was about a 23 to 24% growth um, in value year over year, which typically, and what we're seeing right around now, is back to about a three to four percent. It's not growing astronomically quick unless you're right in a very transitional area. Um, and then have your correct entitlements, things of that nature. Um, so it's, it's gotten, gotten a lot, lot different. Um, pretty much what I've seen in South Carolina over the majority is on tracks less than about two to 300 acres. Your, your dirt value is, has about doubled since early 2020. Um, in most areas you were looking on larger tracks, about a thousand dollars an acre where now you're looking $2,000 an acre pretty easily about anywhere um, for bare dirt. Did, did one good sized track right at the end of last year that was clear cut wall to wall and all the trees that were on it was back on a river buffer and that was it. And that went $2,200 an acre. And compared to early 2020, if you had even thought $2,200 an acre, you'd gotten laughed out of the room. You wouldn't have even had to say 22. If you thought it, people would have picked up on it and left you out. Um, but going pretty, pretty easily now. Um, and smaller tracks, same thing, just, uh, just higher dollars. Um, but the percentage is being uh, about the same. Yeah, there is there is that kind of economy of scale where the smaller tracks per acre will will kind of. You, you get more value with more land when you when you do it that way. You purchase those larger pieces. So. If I'm if I'm hearing you right, the, the things that you want to to really kind of dive into, whether you are a prospective buyer or a seller, is you know the key here is access. Um, land that you can't access doesn't come to easy use, right? And then and then figuring out your goals even before that, like you, you want access to it, but you also need a goal behind it. You you can't just like grab a piece of land, throw some roads on it, and there you go. You know, you want to think about the journey of the road. You want to think about the use of the land. You don't want to interfere with, you know, your timber if you're if you're trying to do that for a timber investment or, you know, same goes for farm, same goes for for recreational. And then the other things that you want to do is sort of take care of the infrastructure is look at, you know, one, if you're looking to sell, you want to see, you know, if there's zoning opportunities there. You want to see if there's a home site that's not yet developed that that you're selling with the anticipation of someone building a home in a certain spot, or how often do you see where somebody sells land and they leave the the home site selection up to the buyer and then they sort of fulfill that for the buyer during the transaction process? Is that very common? I haven't seen it much. I have done a couple of that way, um, and usually that comes in the form of a credit to have it cleared. Um, gotcha. as a yeah, because otherwise you're just sitting there and you, without fail, the guy that's going to be doing your your clearings, Ms. Cracker is going to be down or be on vacation or whatever it is. Um, so we've done that a couple of times on a credit perspective um, at closing to, to give give somebody um, that ability to put it where they want to 
and that, that is kind of the downside. If you put the home site in at the beginning and have it tested, a lot of times buyer will want their house in a, in a different spot. Um, but what it still will do is it makes it easier to push that buyer at that point if I'm on the selling side um, to say, hey, you know, we've already got this one done. We're still not going to allow the contingency of a septic testing because we already know this one does. Um, you know, we're all for you. If you want to test it and you can get it done quickly, go for it. But we're not allowing uh, any extended period of time because if you don't get it, somebody else is. Um, somebody else is going to be fine with where it is. So you, you can kind of customize it. Um, did, did a very similar thing a couple of years ago using scale to split a property into three. And with those, we did allow um, the first couple buyers to say where they wanted it because the owner had his own equipment and he could go do it. Ah, that's helpful. <laughs> that made it very, very nice. Uh, they came in, said, "I want here, and want it you know, facing this way, um, or opening out this way, tapering that way." And um, he was able to go out and, and mulch it out for him. So that made it a lot easier um, to kind of give that customization aspect. Um, and uh, several times, I have done a larger track splitting up. We'll just say that it can be subdivided and let the first couple come in and say how much acreage they want and where they want, as long as what's left, the, the remaining puzzle pieces, so to speak, is something that we think is fine with. We'll carve it off based on what they want and then have more of a set plan on the remaining pieces. But so at times you can give that that flexibility and, and sometimes you can't. It's kind of really is a track dependent and you know what you're working with, what you're over. The, that seller's goal is at that point for return. Can it be done? Can it not? Um, one side note, survey is, is, is very good, um, to have, have done one in the beginning for any buyer. And then also specifically, if you're going to be selling parcels off of a bigger piece because of the timing that is associated with it, um, that can be three to four weeks, um, on the six, eight, uh, sometimes even longer on getting a survey at a good price. So having that already done is a big selling point as well, because generally, at least in South Carolina, the survey is, is a buyer cost. So if you've already done that, it allows you to push the price per acre up slightly because that's a convenience factor, so to speak, that a buyer is not going to have to do. Um, it allows you to, to, to push that price per acre up and they say, no, I'm not willing to pay that price per acre. All right, that's fine. We'll come down on our price per acre, but you're giving us a credit back for this portion of the survey. Generally, they'll pay the higher price per acre. And if there's an appraisal issue on an appraisal because of that, we'll bring that point to their attention that this was already done. And then if we have to revert back to what I just said and we'll lower the price per acre, then we're going to have a credit come back our way for giving you that convenience. Gotcha. Okay. So, it, and, and so if I'm hearing, you know, hearing this right, we are at a time where, where you're not going to walk into a property and, and nab it up and then just hold it for a short amount of time and then flip it. It's, it's not, there's not going to be a ton of return there. And, right. and there are, there's, there are cases like there, there's, you know, there's always a diamond in the rough, right? But, yeah, if you just get a steal at the beginning, it, it can work, but mm, that doesn't happen a ton. Yeah. Yeah. So, so really, I mean, we're kind of like, we're at the elbow grease part of the economy, right? Where if you do want that quick return, you got to do some work. And, and it, depending on, you know, they're outside of the larger scale improvements that you can make, you can select your home site, you can get the septic tested, you can get the roads put in, but in, in, you know, there's also other strategies that you can implement, like getting it surveyed in advance, just to eke out a little bit more return 
there's a lot that kind of goes into this when you're evaluating this, right? Mm-hmm. It's, it's I, I find that interesting. Like it's, it's sort of going from these, these seismic sort of increases that we that we've seen in the market to like, ah, you know, you're, you're looking at a few dollars here and a few dollars there. And, and I, I always say in my house, my, I always, I'll get like pastries in my house and it makes my wife crazy. Cause she goes by and like takes little bites out of it. I'm like, you know, a lot of little bites equal big bites. <laughs> Might as well take it in one swoop. Might as well get it through one. Yeah, yeah. So <laughs> I've, I've got some other consultants that I, I mean, I've learned a lot from over the years um, in regards to doing things like this. We had a field day a couple of years ago that invited a bunch of, uh, of my clients to come and see some of the different pieces of equipment in action, what they were doing, what the difference in just a dozer pushing a road in versus it looks like compared to uh, having some mulching done in an area um and then even taking it all the way to perspective of having a just a, a crew of guys doing a bunch of handwork just chainsaws and pole saws just to open up a road um that's already there through through some good timber um so just limbing things up so the truck doesn't get scratched on the way by or you're not having to slap the person in, in the face with a, a limb that you didn't hold on to long enough till they got there um little things like that but so from from several guys, I've learned a ton of this stuff over the years and still try to get them incorporated when I can because they're looking at it from here. Here's the easiest way for us to do it and the best way for us to do it to get be the most cost effective. Um, looking at the topography on, on a road, you're only putting it on a road, but water's going to be running down and start rutting your road out the whole way. And so you take it a different way, you're going to uh, make it easier on your maintenance costs moving forwards. Um, and then laying things out to where you're not, you can hunt three or four people at the same time, even on a relatively small track, because you're all shooting in a different direction. So you got to be cautious of where you're, you're aiming on things. So your food plots need to be in good areas um, from a safety perspective while hunting and uh, for the wildlife aspect, you want it to be where they're going to feel comfortable. Yeah. And one thing I don't want to underserve here as we're talking about this is, is, you know, I, I kind of framed the whole, everything we just talked about in terms of that sort of, you know, selling for profit at a certain point for somebody looking to make, you know, the, those quick dollars. Right. But it, the same applies to like a landowner. That's like a legacy landowner. It's been in the family for three generations and they're finally looking to sell and they've probably made improvements to it. And, and yeah, you could sell that, that property and you, you could do that really easily, put it on the market, do that. But if you just put in that a little bit of extra work, to, to make the right roads in the right way, to make sure that there's home sites already there, to make sure that it's surveyed, to do that legwork up front. Like, otherwise, those are dollars you're leaving on the table. You could maximize your property's value before sale instead of just throwing the thing on the market. And you, and if, you know, I think everybody's objective is to maximize what they have. Those are things that everybody should do, right? Mm-hmm. And get back on to the finance aspect of things. <clears throat> say you've got a, a family farm that's been handed down several generations and you don't want to break that trend. You're not going to, to sell the family farm. What you can do is with those improvements, um, have a, a new appraisal done that allows you to borrow against in a lot of aspects, borrow against that property pledging. It is collateral. And so having a, a land bank that understands valuations of these kind of properties, you can still leverage what you already have to go get other properties, whether that's to, to try to flip just to make money um, or um, just for you to have another track, another property to go to, you can leverage that property you got. And on a separate note on the, the financing aspect, if you know you're going to be doing a lot of these improvements, 
depending where your purchase price is, if it's low enough, you can a lot of times can have what's called an as will be appraisal uh, performed, which will be incorporating the plans of what you're going to do to that property. And oftentimes we'll be able to leverage the bank's money to have those things done. Again, whether you're planning on reselling it or not, it still allows you to get some of those things done and factored in in your financing um, to be able to get a lot more bang for your buck out of that property. And we, so we were, we were jabbering there before, before we kicked the record button on and you brought up another strategy that I just thought was fascinating, which was you, you have land in hand and maybe you just want to land in a different place to hunt. Right. So throwing a 1031 exchange on it, but you were bringing up about not putting all your eggs in one basket as far as acquiring new land. Uh, as far as like selecting different parcels as opposed to one large parcel. I was wondering if you could talk me through that just because I thought it was a really cool story. Yeah, so that, that scenario is, is we're, we're going through right now. I'm getting ready to put a property on the market and they want to move um, the money through a 1031 exchange into some properties out of state. Um, they probably will not go to as often as they do with the one that's 10 minutes away from the house. Um, but in an area that generally has larger deer and I was talking with another friend of mine um, with another company and just kind of getting his two cents on this other area. And he said, you know, when they're, they're going to have a good chunk to spend, I would go in and get multiple properties in that area instead of just getting one because in that area, chronic wasting disease is a lot more prevalent than in some other areas. So what that would do was allow you to have multiple pieces in, a, in one general area so that they're able to have a higher chance of being able to hunt whenever they want it, even if there's an outbreak that makes it to where they can't hunt as much on that property. If you only have one property and that's ground zero, so to speak, of, of that issue, you may not be able to use it even though you have it. But if you have things in a relative area, you have a higher chance of still being able to use those properties and get enjoyment off of at least one of them. Um, generally, for, for something like that, when you're going out of state anyway, you're going to be up there for a good little bit of time and you're going to want to go see other things. And so if you have multiple properties and allows you to change your scenery when you're hunting, you can hunt each property a different day. Um, so give everybody your all hunt each property the same day, just in different spots and different people. Um, so it allows you a lot more flexibility um, and then at that point, casting a larger net on ability to resell those properties. Somebody comes along and that's the perfect track. Well, you might be able to sell that one and pick up the neighboring piece to one of the others if it sounds better or just get another smaller piece somewhere. Yeah, and, and the whole 1031 exchange process adds complexity to that because you have like, what, 40 days to, to select the properties that you want to get from the sale? Is that... The timing, timings get tough. Um, and yeah. talking with somebody that understands 1031s very... Uh, very explicitly is great. Um, you can do reverse 1031s in which you buy the um, second property first, um, but that is a little bit more convoluted. Um, it's a need to be able to have have a tax account at preferably um, that's going to be able to help go through that. Um, this is really the, the best thing uh, that you can do is, is have the right team around you that understands all the different ins and outs. Um, and one other thing we can just add in um, a lot of these improvements are going to be able to, to be deducted from your capital gains at the end as well. 
So there's a return aspect that you you were able to get on a tax savings basis. So your overall net return is going to be impacted by these, even if it's only from a deduction standpoint. It's something that you're going to be able to put the money in. I always tell everybody, keep any receipts you have. If they don't have a receipt, get them to give you one. I mean, to make something that can be very rudimentary, but need to see an exchanging of money um, for a service rendered so that that can be deducted um, from a capital appreciation aspect on the property. Also extremely valuable to keep in mind is if you are making these improvements, they can be tax deductible. Yep. And a lot don't think about it. And you know, oftentimes they'll do the work themselves. Um, having a, a good attorney or not attorney accountant that can um, break down and say what a fair market value of what you did from a sweat equity standpoint what of that can be written off. Um, if you have it in LLC, you can write off your your mileage to and from the property. But all of that needs to go through an accountant that does the ins and outs of these all day, every day. Um, so again, from the team aspect of it, I always want to get that referred to somebody that is a true professional on it and make sure that everybody can work together on that to get those goals achieved. You're saying you don't want to do this on TurboTax? I wouldn't, no. <laughs> I would not. Yeah, I agree. Well, hey, um, Nick, uh, just want to thank you for your time. Um, I, I want to make sure that we that we hold you to your to your hour here, so you can get back to your day. So, um, so hey, you work out of South Carolina. Tell me the area that you work in. At this point, I've, I've bounced all around the states. I'm the primary um, agent around Chester County, York County. Um, Kershaw, Lancaster, Chesterfield um, are all my primary areas. And then at that point, I, I kind of do bounce around from there with a lot of clients in overlapping areas. Um, we'll help in different areas as needed. Um, so anything I can do in South Carolina, I'm willing to. I've done stuff pretty much probably about 80% of the counties at this point. Um, so I have connections all around and, and work with a lot of different agents with with national land and with other companies. Um, so I have a strong network on being able to, to get things done when we need to in different areas. And I think it's very clear that you know your stuff. So th- it's very it's very obvious that landowners in your, your area need to reach out to you to work with uh, a good consultant on their land. And, and additionally, these are great tips for every single landowner or potential buyer out there to sort of maximize value and, and to look at what they can do to land before they purchase it to, to analyze if they can bring value to the table, if they are looking to sell. Um, these are all extremely valuable tips. So, uh, Hey, I appreciate your time, man. Uh, this is great, great information for people and, uh, it's much appreciated. Likewise, likewise, enjoyed it and appreciate the time as well. And look forward to seeing how everything pans out. Yeah, we'll do it again. We'll do it again. Definitely. This concludes episode number 37 for the National Land Realty Podcast with land professional Nicholas Artis discussing land improvements to maximize your land value. You can learn more about land ownership and the buying and selling of land at nationalland.com. 